Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. We are all born with an innate uh, psychobiological core drive to do one thing, and that's not to uh, even consume food or shelter or warmth, you know, the core overriding drive of human beings is to connect to others for security. That is the fundamentally most important thing that we do as infants to survive. It is through connecting that all the other requisites of food, shelter, warmth, uh, addressing our needs are met. So the, the quality of these early connections is so determinative. In fact, starting with the work of Conrad Lorenz and Harry Harlow, leading into, of course, the great wisdom of John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, D.W. Winnicott, Wilfred Bion, and so forth, all the great psychologists of the late 20th century showed that this, this need to bond, to connect, is so determinative and so fundamental. We don't only connect because it's what allows or provides us with the requisites that ensure our survival, but human beings do not co-regulate or do not auto-regulate emotions very well, certainly not over an extended period of time. Auto-regulate is the ability to self-soothe when you're in distress and switch your nervous system out of sympathetic back into parasympathetic, ventral, a higher state of rest, digest, relax, non-reactivity, where you can use the frontal lobe of your brain again. We all start out life incapable of doing that on our own. We need someone to restore us when we are activated, when we are frightened, uh, disgusted, uh, when we are angry, when we are uh, in any strong affect state, we need someone else to hold us, to soothe us, to address our discomfort so that we can restore ourselves back into a state of um, the nervous system goes back to parasympathetic and then all the developmental higher parts of the brain, the frontal lobe, the dorsolateral, all that starts shaping and coming online. So um, it's deeply uh, important and when we feel connected it allows us to create a secure sense of self with a sense of self-esteem and uh, it really uh, creates our expectations of others in our lives. And it's because of this fundamental drive of needing to be especially seen by others. If there's any epicenter of connection, it is that experience of feeling observed by others, feeling that other people are witnessing us. As one psychologist, Diana Fosha said, being seen in the eye of the other. The sense that someone is securely observing us caring about our state, available to us. And this is why emotional isolation, that feeling of, you know, you can be surrounded by people in, of course, New York or in a job, but if you don't feel that there are people there that you can disclose how you're feeling and that they will care about these core affects, these emotional states of being that are the most uh, I would say indicative of our core true self is the is our our emotional state, our affects, how we feel, not our thoughts. Um, it's the way we feel. And if you don't feel that sense that someone's there, that they care about how you feel, that they accept how you feel, that they are willing to, that they would want to soothe you, then the nervous system winds up in a chronic stress state. 
And why is that? Why is it that our nervous system uh, is activated by a experience of not being seen, not being witnessed, observed, cared for, uh, that there's no one available that will, that really can mirror our emotional states or empathize with us. Well, uh, let's back up a little bit, uh, just for a second. Um, when we're in danger, part of the lower region of the brain, not far from the brain stem called the hypothalamus, sends a message to the sympathetic nervous system down to your adrenal glands. And what do they do? They flood your bloodstream with adrenaline and cortisol. And guess what? That uh, changes the way you, the way the blood flows. It tightens the arteries. It stops your digestion. And it puts you into this I'm survival state. And when you're in the sympathetic nervous system, when your heart rate starts beating faster when you start gulping in air or when you, your, your thoughts race. You have the same thought over and over again. And it's, a, it's generally thoughts about survival. It's about, oh, I'm not gonna be able to do this. I'm in trouble. What, I'll wind up homeless or whatever. I'm just naming my top 10. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the state of being alone for human beings for the for virtually the entirety of our species developmental history was essentially a state of being in great danger the vast bulk of our species evolution uh, involved us living in small hunter gatherer collectives or clans they would call it where we live our entire life with five or six other adults and a few children. And we would be foraging most of our lives for very scarce food. And if you were in a community of maybe six adults and you, five of them went out to forage for food, maybe one would come back with anything edible. So if you didn't feel seen and cared about by others, you would either starve, be kicked out of the clan, you would wind up being killed by another clan, you would starve to death. So that feeling of being important to other people is deeply wired in to our feelings of uh, safety, our feelings of survival. In fact, there's an entire circuit of the brain that Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberger, two neuropsychologists, uh, the epicenter is the anterior cingulate cortex, that if you feel uh, seen and there's people that care about you, the anterior cingulate uh, will uh, produce um, natural uh, uh, opiates. What? Like beta, uh, beta encephalin? No, what's the, uh, very close, what's when you, uh, endorphins. Exactly, but that, but two, that probably two. Uh, in their book, I definitely remember that the anterior cingulate can raise the endorphins level, as well as serotonin. When we don't feel seen, and when we don't feel the presence of other people who know about how we feel our state of being, then endorphins drop. We don't feel comfortable in our body, in our own skin. Serotonin drops, mood plummets, and so forth. The more isolated we are, the more we are in chronic stress. When we're in chronic stress due to the presence of cortisol, it's disastrous for the body. I mean, from diabetes to uh, it ages us it, because it stops producing white blood cells, our immune system is compromised, and being in chronic stress essentially uh, is exceedingly damaging to the neural sheaths of the hippocampus, which allows you to form memories. So long-term stress is correlated with dementia. Kochiopo, the great uh, recently departed uh, psychologist of the University of Chicago, loneliness study showed that the presence of loneliness in any five-year period of her life is the greatest single predictor of anxiety and depression in our lives, that's the single predictor of it. Um, and Hunt and Lundstedt did a meta-analysis of half a million people, 500,000 people. And 
They showed that lonely individuals who report uh, chronic loneliness, which is loneliness again in a five-year period, have a 50% increased risk of early mortality. So that's a huge bump. Uh, and it's directly because of the effects of cortisol. This is why, uh, contrary to the myths, that uh, the Buddha's teachings were all about becoming uh, independent and entirely self-reliant and uh, that the, the goal was to attain some isolated state where we sit in a cave on a mountain in the Himalayas on our own, uh, the Buddha in, I mean, the, absolutely the, uh, the most uh, deeply uh, important suttas in the Pali Canon, the Sambodhi Sutta, which is the sutta on how you awaken, he said, if somebody asks you, what is the prerequisite for awakening, you must answer, having um, admirable, dependable friends. In the Upada Sutta, when Ananda asked the Buddha, is it true that the holy life, half of it is having friends? The Buddha said, don't ever say that. It's the entirety. It's the foundation of, of, the, of the spiritual life. And in the Mita Sutta, the Buddha defines what these friends are. It is essential for one to cultivate wise friends who will endure your pain. That means empathize with you while you're uh, in distress and your difficult words. In other words, they'll sit and they'll listen and they'll endure it when you're in your you're, you're sad, frightened, activated, when you just want to give up. They, they won't be reactive. They won't interrupt you and tell you, oh, you shouldn't feel... They'll endure it. Endure means to listen, to create a safe container. They'll share their secrets with you and keep your secrets safe. And that's important. If we just have a sense that a friend is always just is not revealing themselves to us, that doesn't really make us feel connected. So somebody's willing to talk about their shit. <laughs> Buddha didn't say, oh, I'll talk about their shit, you talk about your shit, it'll all be better. But that would probably be if he was speaking around today. Uh, and when setbacks occur, they won't desert you. So there's a sense of reliability there, that they're not just there when things are going well, and he adds, they won't judge or shame you. So there's no way around how important it is to connect with others. Um, that said, uh, I'm now gonna talk about what we can do to develop a greater resilience that will help us auto-regulate our emotions and down-regulate our sadness or uh, states of activation when we are alone and when we don't feel someone is, you know, there's other people directly available. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Um, one of the key developmental milestones that uh, we develop in life, hopefully, if we have a secure uh, early relationship with uh, an available parent, is what's called object constancy. So what is object constancy? Well, that's the ability to uh, internalize the helpful qualities of someone who takes care of us or cares about us over time. The idea is that in early childhood, a child depends on the caregiver, the mother or the father, or whoever's tending to the child. And the child, if, as it becomes confident that the mother or the father is paying attention when the child is out in a playground or wandering around, the child then doesn't have to check and look to see that the mother is there looking. The child now can wander because she feels the sense that people care about her, that there's other people there. So when she doesn't see the mother, she still knows that the mother is there. Now, this object constancy over the course of life, the more we get reliable friends, people who care about us, or there's this experience of care in our life. 
over time, even when our if our caregivers or those who support us, should they die or we move away from them or we uh, they not be available, we still have that sense that we're secure, that pe- that we're lovable, that people care about us. That if we wind up having a setback in our journey or we struggle, that we are worthy of attention from others. It's a felt sense. It's not a story. Oh, I'm a pretty cool guy. I, you know, I can go out and explore and take risks in my life because I know, you know, uh, whatever I deserve. No, that's not cognitive at all. It's a and a felt embodied somatic feeling of I am cared about by others. The the child who has that object constancy, when she looks at herself in a mirror and she's two or three and she starts recognizing her form, her immediate response, secure children will be those experience delight at seeing themselves. They'll dance in front of the mirror, they'll smile, they'll twirl around they'll have this sense of embodied joy. A child that doesn't have object constancy, that grew up with a mother who was distracted or const- or father who wasn't emotionally in sync, always depressed, or a parent who was always frustrated or angry or distracted, that child looking in the mirror, seeing her reflection will not feel anything. There'll be this kind of blankness. And if there's real abuse, she might even feel disgust at seeing her own image. So the degree to which she feels this sense of somatic joy, happiness, this sense of of, uh, her her chest opens up with pride, uh, her, her head looks up, and she feels this sense of, I'm worthy because people care about me. She lives now in a body that as she grows up into adult life, she can easily connect with others and she doesn't feel that reaching out to make new friends, which is very vulnerable, will lead inevitably to disappointment. She feels it will lead to something good. She opens herself up. She's in that body of I've got nothing to worry about. The child that that grows up in a insecure attachment structure goes into this defended state, doesn't make eye contact, or um, there's this tightness in the shoulders and the chest. As Pat Ogden, a great uh, psychologist, um, writes, our entire, the, the most formative events of our lives, which happen very early on and also in traumas, we can't remember. And that's why they're so influential. It's precisely because they happened before we could develop narrative memory. And because we can't remember these early events, we can't bring them up into consciousness and tell our, and change them and say, hey, I know I didn't get enough attention at this point in my life or enough care or security or love and protection, but I deserved it. It wasn't my fault and now people are available. If we could do that, then none of you would be here. <laughs> none of us would you know, be like, you know, um, I think that a lot of uh, the drive to uh, heal, to meditate is, to, is because it's so frustrating at times that the very thing that we rely on to help navigate through the world, our thinking, our rational qualities, is absolutely useless when it comes to healing. So much of it is in the body, is in the somatic, the feeling, the way we, as Pat Ogden, the great sensory motor psychotherapist says, our entire history, the most important events in our life, reside in our bodies, in the way we feel, in our movements, in all the nonverbal parts of our experience. They live on in the right hemisphere, not in the cognitive part. An anxious child who doesn't feel object constancy, that there's people there that care, will cling to others, will constantly seek emotion regulation externally all the time, because there's no internal sense of 
I'm, I'm lovable, I'm secure. She will constantly seek reassurance externally or that child might completely um, self-numb all of her emotions to not feel the disappointment and then wind up, um, she'll wind up exploring the world but not want any connections with anyone and there'll be a self-numbing state that will empty her out of even feeling joy or happiness. Because if you empty out all the disappointments and the sadness, you also empty out all of the possibility of positive emotions as well. So without object constancy, without the sense that there is figures or beings that care about us, we're either constantly clinging and seeking reassurance and incapable of being alone and deeply triggered by loneliness, or on the other hand, we will shut down and empty ourselves out of all of our core emotions or what's known as subcortical uh, stimuli. We will block it off, live in our heads, try to be super rational. Uh, so many guys I know live in this, like, you know, that kind of shut down, I don't want to connect with any of my feelings state. Neither of those outcomes are particularly good. Fortunately, all of us can actually create a sense of object constancy, even if we didn't get it in our early life experience. Um, uh, there's the work of Amre Gilyath, who's a neuropsychologist of Kansas, the works of Lowry, Hardin, Sinclair, and others show that we can actually uh, create feelings of object constancy, and there's different ways that we can do it. One study they just put in the rooms of people who were test subject. In one room, they put images of mothers holding babies securely, smiling, people dancing together, priming images associated with care, connectedness. And in another room with the other tests, the subjects, they didn't put any images that had any emotional positive quality to them. And then and after they did the self-reported tests in the aftermath, and people who were in the rooms with the priming images, even though they weren't told, hey, we're putting up these images to change the way you feel about your security in the world. No, they didn't do that. They just asked, how do you feel this week? Are you, what's, you know, have you taken any risks? Have you, uh, how are you feeling about your relationships? And there was a significant bump up. So that's one way. You could literally have on your desktop or your laptop image, uh, uh, an image you associate with care, connectedness, and just seeing that image all the time, subliminally, even though you know it's a prime, will actually raise and it will probably actually shift you significantly or to a degree back into parasympathetic. But the most efficient way they found, and I'll quote, was to ask individuals to recall memories of being loved and supported by friends and mentors, or asking people to imagine such scenarios. The right hemisphere, which holds all of these core feelings and determines our behavior in the world and sets the way we act and the way, and the way we feel in the world, is, does not understand ideas. So all of these things I've been yapping on to you about, your left is like, okay, that sounds pretty interesting. Your right is like, oh, I don't know what's going on. But we can actually talk to the right hemisphere using images. Uh, in the work of Brown and Elliot, two uh, Buddhist psychologists who are attachment experts and who wrote the book Attachment Disturbances in Adults, which is now the sort of fundamental textbook on attachment theory. They, their, their protocol involves visualizing an ideal parent, a, a, a caregiver that we didn't get when we needed it, or someone who cared about us, and just visualize that person looking at us and offering us the very things we needed. Generally, it's a sense of they're not going to go away. They're available. 
that they see how we feel, again, feeling seen, that they can soothe us, they, they, they're not so distressed themselves by our emotions that they can calm us down, and that they delight in our growth and care about our development. Those are the four qualities of secure attachment. So our uh, uh, mission tonight in our meditation is first to develop self-soothing, and then we're going to use priming images as guided visualizations in our practice to create the felt sense of secure attachment or someone who cares. And when you have object constancy, this sense of someone looking at you, caring about you, the end result is that we can actually withstand periods in our life when we are not with others with a far greater degree of resilience. Because again, it's the lack of object constancy, the lack of that felt sense of people that care about me that make being alone so triggering. Okay? So thanks for listening. I hope something in that was of some interest. If not, next week I'll try to do better. And now we're going to put all of this into practice. Again, so much of the way we think and the way we act is determined by the posture and the physiological state that we're in. So that will be a part of this practice too. So closing the eyes. And we'll start with some soothing breaths. So, take a full in-breath through the nose and squinch all the muscles in the face, clench the jaws, pinch the nose, squeeze the micro-muscles around the eyes, furrow the brows, make an ugly little pinched face, and then with a long exhalation, Relax every muscle you can. This is uh, when we're in our uh, ventral parasympathetic, relaxed, connected, broaden and build, developmentally uh, capable, confident state, we express our emotions on our face. A good way to get to that place is just to soften all the muscles and just encourage your eyes to relax behind the closed eyelids. You'll find that if your eyes begin to settle, stop bouncing around or looking around behind closed eyelids and the mind begins to settle with the eyes. When we're activated, the eyes shift around looking, searching for a threat or an opportunity. So just remind your eyes that you're safe. There's no food in the room. We don't have a salad bar. So there's nothing to keep track of. And now another full breath and lift the shoulders up and open up the chest by pulling the shoulders back as you breathe in. And then as you breathe out, slowly lower the shoulders and let the arms hang as heavily as they can, opening up the chest, keeping that that confident physiological state where we're not clenched or tight, we're open. 
a little bit like when you're if you ever do yoga and you go from downward dog into upward facing and your chest opens up and you're just <coughs> confidently showing yourself to the world and then for the third full in-breath push out the belly like you're the in-breath is bloating the belly to an extreme sort of ridiculous I hope nobody looks at me my belly is so big right now and then long out breath softening the abdominal muscles and from this point on try to breathe into a soft belly. When you breathe in, feel the belly elastically expanding, making room. And then when you breathe out, as slow as you can, a really soft release in the belly, just softening, relaxing. The more time you spend exhaling, the more relaxed you become. When we breathe in, it actually activates the sympathetic. Interestingly enough, when we breathe out, the vagal nerve produces acetylcholine, which then activates states of greater ease, concentration. So the key is to try to make your out-breath about twice as long as your in-breath. So if you, we could start this practice just by counting the length of the in-breath. So if you count to three, the in-breath and try to incline the out-breath to reach a count of six. For those who don't like working with the breath itself, no worries, you can just listen to the sounds surrounding you and find a constant sound to keep in the foreground of your awareness, like the fan. Or you could just scan the body locating a feeling in the body that feels really good, maybe the palms of the hand. Just feeling that area from the inside out, trying to spread the soothing sensations up from the palm to the arm. So try to keep an actual sensation, whether it's breathing in your belly, the sound, other sensations in the body, keep those in the foreground of your awareness. And if there's any thoughts or memories or other unresolved issues, just allow them to be in the background. You don't have to push them away. And the good news is if you become aware that you've become lost in a thought, 
in that awareness that you become lost in a thought, you're already back to liberating yourself from it. So realizing you've been lost in a thought, virtual reality, it means you're already on the journey back to the present, to your life. So it's something to celebrate, not to feel frustrated by. We'll just sit here for a while in silence.
Check your body and see if you can return to uh, physiological state, felt state of that delighted child seeing herself in the mirror, open chest, head held, high, soft belly. Shoulders relaxed, the softness around the eyes. Really open presentation of nothing to be ashamed about. Body. And then visualize some person. And now this can be a real person or imagined. You associate with care. Someone who is interested in you. Who sees or is capable of understanding how you feel. This could be a real person, someone who's been a soothing figure in your life, someone that you've been able to go to. Or you could be an entirely imagined person. Or it could be someone who really exists that we don't know, that we associate with kindness, attention, care. For those of you who know Tara Brock or Kima Chodron, a soothing figure who if we were with them would be kind, So whoever you use, just have them look at you with a soft, welcoming, supportive expression. Try to make the image to the degree that you can as detailed as possible. For those of you who struggle to visualize in your mind, just create the physical sense of what it's like to be with someone who cares. And just try to maintain that state. To the degree that you can visualize, just have that person look. And then as you look into this expression of care, try to soften even more in your body. Try to burn this feeling of being important to someone. Burn it in, ingrain it, deepen into the sensations in the body, really get to know the body of being loved.
If your chest feels tight, breathe in while you hold this image of someone caring about you in your mind. Just breathe into your chest and soften. Now see if you can find some sensation in the body that feels slightly more confident, secure, even a little bit, even the tiniest bit more open, maybe in the throat or the face, the chest or the belly, find even the slightest physical sense of being safe and very slowly while you feel the sensation slowly open your eyes and bring that feeling with you into the rest of your evening so obviously it would be good if we could do that practice once and <laughs> We all would feel object constancy, the sense of the secure figure ever present in our life. But it don't work that way. Gotta do this every day for a while. Just burn it in, burn in that feeling, deepen into that physiological sensation of what it feels like to be cared about. And then, uh, what happens is, over time, it becomes a physiological state that we go into more and more frequently when we're alone. And then those feelings of vulnerability or uniqueness or unlovable, that unlovable sense begins to dissipate because you're now putting yourself in an entirely different body and all of our thoughts and behaviors come up from the bottom. <laughs>